Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and excited for today's episode with Delise O'Mealy, uh, the CEO and Executive Director of the Institute for Sport and Social Justice. Uh, she is affiliated with the UCF program and excited to talk to her about uh, her experiences, not only in the industry, 17 plus years with the NCAA and all the, all the incredible things that she's accomplished along the way, but then also what she's up to now. And we'll dive a little bit into what the, the Institute is and, and why and uh, where it's going. So Delise, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Jake. It's a pleasure. So, you know, one one would ask, what is the Institute for Sport and Social Justice? Uh, we'll get there in a minute, but how did you okay. get there is probably the more important question that we'll cover first. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, your time at the NCAA and uh, in Indianapolis and, and what you were able to do and accomplish there. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I started at the NCAA back in 1997. I was a young administrator, really um, almost fresh out of um, undergrad, actually grad, because I had done my, my uh, MBA also before joining the NCA. But really just, you know, it was a whole new world for me. I was working on campus, my alma mater, actually, Morgan State University. And I was doing um, initially some compliance work. I did a little sports information work. And I was um, you know, moving up and doing, you know, overseeing some programs. And this opportunity opened up at the NCAA. And at the time, the association was in Kansas City. And for me, um, you know, if you looked at my background, I'm originally from Montego Bay, Jamaica. And so I came to this country, I moved uh, to New York, and then I was down in Maryland. And Kansas couldn't have been, Kansas could have been the other end of the world, really, for me. I mean, I just, okay. But, you know, I believe in taking advantage of opportunity. And even when you don't completely know what it's going to look like, I knew that this was a good opportunity for me. And so I packed up and I, I moved out to Kansas City. And, um, you know, my early roles with the NCA were in the uh, legislative compliance related field. So I would have been one of the people that you would get on the phone if you called to ask about NCA rules. How does this work? Can I do this? Can my, can my kid do that? And also doing some um, reviews on campus to ensure that um, athletics departments were operating according to NCA principles. So, I, you know, I did that for a number of years, moved up the ranks there, became a director overseeing interpretations area and really digging deep on some of those difficult issues and after about seven years of that I got a little burned out you know I, I got a little bit tired of being the one to answer the question to always the, the book stops here with you know the question and I needed some new opportunities I needed something different so I kind of branched out a little bit at the association tried to find some new opportunities and something came up that just really worked for me. It was in a policy related area. So the governance area and governance really is the organization and the management of the NCA structure, uh, its committee structure and its policy making structure. And so I moved into a role that would oversee governance from an association wide perspective. So you, you know the NCA, you know it's, um, it, it's divisional. You've got divisions one, two, and three, and they each have their uh, relative autonomy to make decisions on issues that impact them and their divisions, but they are issues that cross all divisions. And so these were the association-wide issues. And um, so I was responsible for managing those issues and bringing them through the system. And a lot of times those issues would be around uh, student-athlete welfare, 
diversity and inclusion type issues, big issues, core principles of the association that you know people felt well, every division needs to adhere to these principles. And so I had the chance to work on a lot of really neat uh, topics in a lot of neat areas, um, things that were relevant, what I thought that were relevant to people, to student athletes, to you know administrators. And so I enjoyed that work. Um, I was instrumental in a couple key policies that really have shown up again to almost 20 years later in, in our kind of lifetime now. Um, I was at the beginning of the Confederate flag policy that the NCA enacted back in 2001. And at the time that policy was restricting NCA championships in states that carried either part of the Confederate flag on their state national flag or they were flying the Confederate flag in very prominent state locations. And then about four years later, I was at the beginning of the Native American mascot policy. And then we just saw, of course, the Washington team making a change, Cleveland making a change. But in those early years, 2005 to about 2012, you know, it was really, I mean, it was hectic dealing with those issues because, you know, there, there was a lot of commentary from the public as to whether or not the NCA really should have even been involved in this and it was not the right thing. And, and you know, we got all of the politically correct statements at the time. So it was interesting for me now seeing what's happening in our, in our country after, you know, all of these years of talking about these things. Um, or probably one of the, mo the things that I'm most proud of that I did at the NCAA would have been around 2008 or nine, I started an international affairs program. And this was because it's a passion for me. I was an international student athlete and I recognize the challenges that international student athletes have when it comes to this country. Now I'm from the Western hemisphere, originally from Jamaica, but you know, we had kids coming from China from, you know, all over and language differences, cultural differences. And so it started really as that how do we help international student athletes, but it grew into how do we engage with other countries? How do we share what we know with, you know, the knowledge that we have around collegiate sport? How do we embrace and engage uh, schools from other countries? And I was part of the NCAA's first, uh, I, I want to say international member, but it, it is Canadian member to join the NCAA back in 2010. Simon Fraser University, we went through a whole legislative process to allow this to happen. And for me, it was a step in the right direction because I believe that the NCA should be inclusive um, beyond its borders. That's, that was my perspective. And so I continued doing that work, you know, really enjoyed it because it's been a passion. Uh, I had the chance then to start working with the World University Games with the International University Sport Federation, which is based in Lausanne, Switzerland. And I continued that work after I left the NCA in 2014. I can talk a little bit about why, you know, how I left and what kind of pulled me to the role that I'm in now. But the international piece, um, my involvement continued. And so over the past 12 years, I've been heavily involved and actually really honored and proud that that last November in Torino, Italy, I was elected as a U.S. representative to the International University Sport Federation Executive Committee. So that's the highest body in that organization, much like the IOC serves in that role, but for university sport and I'm the US representative. So pretty amazing. I actually just had an email today because our next meeting is supposed to be in Russia in October. And they're asking really, I mean, who can go? Can, are you allowed to go quarantine, whatnot? So I was digging on the internet today to find out 
what I mean, can I go and, and what needs to happen? So those, you know, that's that kind of wraps up my NCA uh, tenure in a little bit of a nutshell for you, I think. Um, I've been at the Institute now for six years uh, doing the work that we do. And I can stop talking now if maybe you have another question. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think <laughs> like as you listen to you, you know, yourself go through through that journey, it's incredible, obviously, what you've accomplished. But when one sets out for a journey in sports, especially being a former student athlete as yourself and, and even being an international student athlete, like you probably didn't think that you were going to get into, uh, you know, the, the governance and policy world and the, you know, policymaking and, and the international affairs. I mean, those aren't things that you necessarily wake up at 12 years old and go, I want to do this, <laughs> right? I, you know, and, and I guess I would ask, you know, how did that passion evolve and sure. you know for, for someone who's listening to this going you know I'm, a, I'm, in, I'm in college or I'm in the middle of my career and, and wondering a little bit more about the governance and policy side right obviously it's it's not the uh, sexy side of the business right and, and you know dealing with the athletes and all that sort of stuff but uh, you're making to your point a really big impact and there's a lot of things that you're working on that that, you know, to your point, come up 20 years later, and they have, you know, repercussions across not only our, our landscape, but, but internationally as well. Sure. No, it, it actually is sexy. Okay, so it's not the most sexy, I will agree. Probably at the NC, maybe the championships folks, that was a little bit sexier, but because you titles, are a lot of big types, <laughs> a lot of big words, right? I mean, right, right. <laughs> but you're at the table, you know, you are in the discussion. You are part of the conversation uh, around what shapes the association. And for me, that's exciting. You know, you can do a lot of things. You can be involved in a lot of areas, but if you can be part of the decision-making process, if you can be in that center, in the room where it happens, if you don't mind, I've been watching Hamilton over and over. <laughs> if you can be in the room where it happens, then you can actually help to drive change. And change has to, change has to be impacted by many different people with many different backgrounds. And so the fact that I'm there bringing who I am and all of my history and what I bring as an immigrant to this country, as a former athlete and all of it, it helps to make the decision-making process better. So I would say to a, a young person who is thinking about, okay, what can I do? You want to be part of the process that helps to make the decisions and chart the path for the future. And yeah, it doesn't sound sexy, but when you get in there and you're actually dealing with the issues and you see the, the, the impact, then you realize the value of it. No, absolutely. And, you know, with, with your role now at the Institute for Sport and Social Justice, you know, you're working on, on matters that impact people, right? Impact our industry, impact right. the way in which we move for the future. And as you've, you know, let, let's talk about that transition because there had to have been a passion point that made you go, aha, this is it. Let me, let me do this. Right. And, and then also to continue it, right? Sometimes people transition into things, they might do it for a year or two, then they transition to something else, but you've, you know, you stuck with it. Uh, so there's gotta be a passion there and, and, you know, explain a little bit of what the Institute's doing and how people can really utilize that knowledge as well. Sure. So um, the Institute, our, our mission statement or our, our premise really is to use the power of sport to advance social good. And so, we engage in educational programs, advocacy, research around um, diversity inclusion issues. We also do a lot of work around the prevention of um, 
violence against women. We've done work around human trafficking. We do leadership development type of work. And so while I was at the NCA, you know, I was doing some of this work in a sense, if you think about kind of the diversity inclusion work with student athlete well-being, the, the policies that we were enacting, we actually did a policy back then in 2010 around transgender participation. And now, you know, we see transgender is still on the table. Conversations are still ongoing. So what really pulled me to the Institute was the opportunity to spend all of my time on these issues, to really hone in on these things that I felt were, were valuable for me as a person, um, with all my layers of intersectionality, who I am, and then that also have such impact on the rest of the world. So just to give you a quick, you know, personal story, my mom was a, a victim of domestic violence, and she was actually fortunate enough to escape with her life. This was many years before I was even born. And she shared that story much later in her life. She's passed away now, but when she shared it, it was around 2005 or so, and I was blown away. I had no idea. And just to hear what she went through, it, it stayed in my mind. And I found that the work that we do in this area really pulled me. The feeling that we could educate people to help them, you know, help others be, you know, an active bystander or to change the way people approach violence, gender-based violence was, you know, one of the things that really drew me to the Institute. So it's a labor of love. You know, we're a small organization. We're nonprofit. And, you know, in the nonprofit world, we're constantly trying to raise money and trying to figure out how we're going to keep going. But the organization has been around for 35 years. And so, you know, as nonprofits go, that's a long life. And we are continuing to do this work and continuing to partner this idea of sport and social good and how we can impact people through the love of sport or their participation in sport or the openness that sport brings to, to people. So that's kind of, you know, the thought process as to why I do this work. And that's an overview of what the Institute does. And in terms of, you know, the impact that sports has on people, right? We, we talk about not only the athlete participating, their families, their communities, but then the fans, their communities. And then you talk about the schools and the student athletes and, you know, their friends and families and absolutely at the schools. And it's that exponential uh, increase in terms of, you know, touching one life, touches three, touches, you know, so on and so on. And as you think about the work that you're trying to accomplish and and spread the word, you know, as, as much as possible, right, in, in these manners, um, what is kind of the, from a perspective of what people need to know, right, as opposed to just having a preconceived notion about a, a specific topic? What are some of the things that people need to know when, as they're looking into this information and, and, and really understanding what it is? Um, and, and when you say disinformation, you mean specifically around DNI or, or what exactly? Whether it's, whether it's around the topic of the mascots, whether it's around the topics sure. of DNI, whether it's around social justice or domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. As you're dealing with these different issues, look, there, there's the nature in which the issues are issues is because they're sensitive issues, right? And they're right. complex mm -hmm. and layered. And so as, as you you know, continue to work on these, what are some things that you want people to know about how to perceive, you know, what you're working on and, and how to help make an impact? Sure. So, you know, it's a good question and, and it's making me think a little bit of how to frame this. Um, you know, conversation is important. 
And we try to engage people in conversation, one-on-one, person-to-person conversation, because we believe that that is how you move the needle. That's how you get people to begin to understand each other. So, for example, you know, our programming is not just, you know, let me talk at you and give you some information. It's a facilitated discussion. So we are engaging and you're engaging and you're talking about the things that matter to you. I'm talking about the things that matter to me. And that's what we've seen over our many years of experience. That's what we've seen uh, that really works. And so that's one point. Conversation has to occur and we have to keep this dialogue going. You know, all of the things that happened over the summer um, and we started to see people talking and sharing with each other, we have to find ways to keep that conversation going because that's the only way we're going to actually change, um, see change in this country. And another point that we always bring up is that shame is not a social justice tool. So we're not in the business of bringing shame because when you bring shame to people, then they retreat. They retreat to a defensive posture and they are no longer able to engage in what we need them, the conversation, so that we can move the dialogue forward. I think it's important for people to understand that notwithstanding what I just said about shame, that people in this country are hurting and are angry about things that have happened. And there needs to be some validation there. Recognize that. But the bottom line is we have to find a way to communicate and talk with each other around these difficult topics, or we will continue on this path that we're on. And, you know, I don't want to be the doom and gloom, but quite frankly, become a really bitter and divided country if we continue in this way. So conversation is important. We don't, we don't traffic in shame. There's no point there. And just an understanding, I think, of other perspectives, yours, mine, your truth, why, you know, what, what in your life brings you to this place and an understanding that then can help us communicate. And as you've, you know, morphed into leadership roles throughout your career and, and ultimately into this, how can, how can others become leaders in this space of DE&I and just the, the social justice aspect of sport and understanding that you don't have to be an expert, right, in order to educate and or say something or, or even learn more, right, and, and have that conversation, as you mentioned, how can you become a leader in this space Um, as, you know, this isn't, it's not a topic that's regularly taught throughout, you know, all campuses and all curriculums to where you go and get your degree in it, right? Uh, It's kind of the the topic that encompasses everything, right? And it's it's layered into everything. So how do you become a leader in that space? And uh, for those, you know, look, we see the, the diversity and inclusion officers or these other types of roles starting to pop up at many organizations, how can someone then get involved in that type of space as well? Sure. So I think it starts with engagement. And if we're talking about students, um, you know, students who are probably still in college, there are opportunities to volunteer and to start to engage with organizations that are doing this work. So you can kind of get a feel for you know, what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, there's a lot of literature out there around various topics. And so you know, people who like to read, you know, there's a lot there that you can really dive into and understand not just the history of, of you know, where we've, where we've been and where we're coming from, but the theories, um, critical race theory, intersectionality, and all of those things and how it impacts people and therefore how you can use that knowledge to educate. Um, you know, it's, it's a, 
you're right. It's it's a subject matter that really covers everything. It's it's part and parcel of everything that we do. Um, you know, people say that if you want to be a really innovative company organization, then you must be diversity must be inclusive. And so, when you think about whatever role you end up in, whatever place you're you're in, you have to have this mindset in order to be successful as a leader in whatever part of the industry. Because in order for you to lead your team successfully, you need to find what's missing. You need to find those ideas and those. Um, perspectives that may not be around the table and you need to be very intentional as you try to engage them. So for a young person who wants to do this work in particular, I would say um, volunteer, start by volunteering, get out there, you know, engage with organizations, see what's happening, but understand that there is a learning that needs to happen um, beyond just your own personal perspective. So my perspective as a woman of color, sure, I bring that. And I can talk about what that means and, and what my life has been like. But I also have to educate myself beyond that so that I can speak to you know, a broad array of topics around these issues, privilege, allyship, all of it. And so there's a learning that's required as well if you wanna really work specifically in this field. Yeah, and you mentioned the perspectives and how important perspectives are. Uh, I want to I wanna talk about uh, photography. You mentioned uh, you are a fan of photography and that's a passion of yours. And, you know, the idea of seeing something through a different lens or a certain type of lens, right? And, and understanding, yeah. you know, the depth and, and the angle and, and all those different things in which, look, there's a lot of things in life that you can look at them a little bit differently and then they somehow relate to what you do on a daily basis. And I want to just talk about what your passion is there um, because nowadays it's really easy for someone to grab their iPhone and, and take a picture and think that they're a good photographer. So we got we to gotta know what kind of camera you have and then uh, how that's kind of impacted your life. Yeah, I have a Canon. I'm, I'm, I'm Canon and I have my, um, my favorite lens is my 70 to 200 uh, 2.8. I also have a, a 100 to 400. It's, um, not as good, it, you know, it gives a, a nice zoom, but it's, it's not as good when you're looking at kind of that nice um, boku, the fade. Um, then I have a few um, uh, a single, I, I guess, I have a, a 35 and a couple others that, that are non-zoom. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm a wannabe, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a wannabe, but I like to have the good equipment so that I can at least do, be the best that I can be as I want to be. I travel a lot because of my international work and I enjoy taking pictures of people and places. Um, I've, you know, some of my really best shots. I took some great shots down in Sao Paulo a few years ago. I've taken some really good shots. I was in Russia um, uh, two years ago, but also before that about four years ago and took some really great shots of just people and you know, moving around, doing what they do, and I, and I really enjoy that. The, the idea about how you see things through a lens, you know, if you've ever tried to take the most beautiful sunset with you, I mean, you see it's, it's spectacular. And then when you take it and you look at the picture, you're like, oh, it's disappointing because you just can't capture that. It's just not possible. And so that's my thought. You know, I wish that the beauty that you can see, that we could actually capture that in our hearts and be, you know, be, the kind of people that carry that with us on a daily basis. So yeah, my photography, I do use my iPhone sometimes, 
I carry my full camera equipment and I do carry my iPhone. And sometimes if I need something quick, I'll use the iPhone. I also last Christmas got myself a drone. And I, after I got the drone, I discovered you can't fly it anywhere because <laughs> there are all of these restrictions, but it's really cool. I have flown it and it's really cool to get that overhead shot and to really see just the beauty of the landscape. So. That's no, hey, you know, when you first started to describe the, le the lenses, I'm like, oh, you're already an expert. You're way more of an expert than probably anyone listening to this unless, <laughs> they, can, unless they can one up you on what they have. But, you know, as you think about the different places you've gone and, you know, we talked about international uh, impact and, and sports being a global thing where, um, you know, they exist in, in all different countries in different ways, right? The way in which, you know, athletics and sports exist in Australia is entirely different than they exist in the U.S. and how people go about being, you know, quote unquote, professional athletes and competing until they're in their mid-30s, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, us uh, student athletes, you know, stopping at 22 and, and not having that type of experience uh, from a life perspective. But, you know, as you've taken your journeys and a lot of the, these different trips, what's maybe something that for someone who hasn't traveled internationally a ton, that you would learn pretty quickly understanding the different landscape and just how people go about uh, sports as a whole globally? Yeah, I mean, there are differences, I agree, and especially at the university level. So the, the US collegiate system is quite unique in terms of how we function. And when you get out there, it's really completely not like that. The, our closest might be Canada, Australia to some degree, they do have a national level sport program but nothing compared to what like the NCAA or even the NAI and the Junior College Association. So from, from that standpoint, I'd say there are differences in people's motivation to go to school to play a sport and how they actually become elite athletes, usually not through the university system. But when you break it down, you know, when you really get down to it, we're all doing the same thing and we're all approaching it with the same amount of passion and the same energy. So that's kind of the unique thing that I see, especially again at the university level. Um, you find young people who are going after their sport in the same way that we do here. Um, they don't always have the same opportunities, or I should say they have different opportunities than we have. But the bottom line is, you know, it's, it's, it's about love of the game and wanting to excel. So, you know, I really love the work that I've done with the World University Games because it is Olympics for university students. And so you're bringing together people who are still in that growth mindset, who are still growing and learning, and they're engaging with all of these other people from 160 countries around the world. And you're meeting people and you're building relationships and, and friendships that will probably last a lifetime. And for me, it's, it's the height of sport diplomacy. And um, you know, it's just a, a really great, wonderful thing. You mentioned diplomas. I mean, we, we didn't even get into your law degree and, and all the other things that you've, you know, done in terms of um, being able to kind of move throughout uh, the, the landscape of education. And I think, you know, as, as we wrap up this episode, would love to kind of understand, you know, if there's one project you can continue to work on or, or you're striving towards in the future that maybe we just don't know about yet, uh, or or there's a topic that you think, you know, will continue to evolve and, and continue to impact uh, society as a whole. What's that, what's that one thing you're working towards from a passion point perspective? Mm, one thing. 
Uh, I'm hugely passionate about my international work and it's because it wraps into it 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 picks the picks up the kind of the diversity inclusion work that I do but takes it on a global scale because it really is about how we engage with each other from a culturally competent way and so you know I'm doing a lot of work right now with the US Federation obviously I'm sitting on that board for the international federation we're trying to see if we can bring um, we actually have the World University Games coming here for the winter in uh, 2023 in Lake Placid, which is, I was um, honored to be a big part of that bid and I serve on their um, uh, council that oversees the organizing committee. And we're talking to other organizations about possibly bringing the summer games here a, a little bit down the road, you know, in the next four, five, six years, maybe. And just, if, if I could just find a way to get people to understand um, my perspective, I'm, I'm a globalist. I believe that there is so much value in engaging and interacting with people around the world. And so those who believe that, you know, well, uh, I'm a nationalist and my country is, you know, better and, and all of that, I think that's not, that's not the right way. That's not where we're going. That's not where this world is going. We have to find a way to live together and to engage with each other and, and ultimately to be at peace with each other or we will not survive. And so my small part of that is through sport and it's through building these interactions and engagement with young people who will then grow up to be leaders in the world. And maybe they will look back and say, okay, I engage with these people. I met some American students in Uganda and you know, they are not what I thought they were. You know, they're people just like me. And somehow we can all make the world a better place. No, I, I couldn't agree more and, and certainly admire the work that you're doing and uh, look forward to, you know, keeping track of, of what you're going to continue to accomplish and uh, excited for those games in 2023. You know, as, as we uh, wrap up this episode, one piece of advice that you'd have for yourself back when you were a student athlete. Oh, I would tell myself to be open to opportunity. You know, just a real quick story. When I first graduated from college, I wanted to be a writer. I was determined that I was going to be a journalist. I was a journalism major. I was going to write. I was going to write for this particular paper. And that's what I was going to do. And, you know, life took some different turns and I got some opportunities and I was asked if I wanted to do some work in compliance. And I said, no, absolutely not. Why would I ever want to do that? Who wants to do that? And fortunately for me, they came back and they asked me a couple more times. Second time, I still said no. Third time, I said, okay, well, I'll do it for a year. And that really launched my career. That then took me to the NCAA and then took me, you know, all the other places. So I would say to my younger self, open your mind. Don't lock in on something so hard. I was lucky that I didn't, that I still got the opportunity. But had left up to me, I probably would have just gone down this path. So be open to opportunities. They might not be what you think. No, that's fantastic and appreciate the insights, the advice, the wisdom, and, and all the knowledge today on the podcast. Uh, Delise, certainly welcome, welcome you on any time in the near future and as you continue to uh, help make an impact in our industry and, and really appreciate everything that you do.